If you had lived in Jerusalem when Peter and John and the other apostles were preaching and teaching, you would have gotten up every single morning saying, what's going to happen today? Because people were getting healed and demons were being cast out and large crowds were gathering together to hear what was being said and to see what was being done. And yet, hardly anyone was joining the church at that point. What was going on? Well, that's what this Bible study episode is all about. Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word, but we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. And look, we're in chapter 5 of Acts, and uh, we just had Ananias and Sapphira last week, as you remember. And uh, so we're coming into verse 12 here, which uh, this is after the Ananias and Sapphira incident, as it were, and uh, kind of what what comes next. And uh, so we know that, you know, Peter is teaching, John is teaching, uh, miracles are happening, and uh, they've already, now you remember, because this is part important for the context that we're going to be looking at today. In chapter 4 of Acts, they've already been arrested once for preaching in the name of Christ about Jesus being the Messiah and his crucifixion and resurrection. They've been arrested already once. They were let go from that after being warned, hey, don't say anything more about this guy, uh, Jesus, right? Um so they ordered them to withdraw. Uh, see, uh, what are we going to do with these men? They called them in again, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So that's what they're, and they let them go. So that was what we've come to to this point. Okay, so verse 12 of chapter 5, it says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. So I wanted to bring this, because this is the second time we've heard about Solomon's colonnade, right? We heard back in, verse th- in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, uh, it says, While the beggar, remember the beggar that Peter healed? While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's colonnade. So here we are again. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. So it's still going on. These signs and wonders are still happening. These miracles are still happening. And, uh, and the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. So this was like their uh, home base, as it were. Uh, they were still probably meeting in people's homes, but when they got together as a group, in the bigger group, this is where they met. So I downloaded this, and I'll have Jan pass it around so you guys can look at it. 
But this is basically a reconstruction of the wind. Well, not yet. <laughs> I got to do, do show and tell for it. So this is basically um, the temple on the Temple Mount. And this, this wall facing you is the eastern wall, which uh, this was all destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans, except part of the western wall is still there, the very bottom part of it, which is what they call the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today. Uh, the rest of it was destroyed. But this, at this point, uh, when we're in Acts, this was here. This is the eastern wall. This is the eastern gate called the Beautiful Gate. This is where the beggar was begging. And you can't see it on the eastern side, but you can see on the other sides. This all along here is these columns, and it's this covered portico or porch with columns, and it's kind of a long, uh, narrow um, area. But the important thing I want to point out is it, it goes... It, it lets out into this huge plaza kind of area. So when it says there, you know, that 2,000 people after uh, Peter preached, after the beggar was healed, that 2,000 people came to Christ, 2,000 men, uh, you say, that's a lot of people in that area. But when you look at this, this was huge. This was a huge, this, both of these together could probably handle hundreds of thousands of people. So, uh, but this became kind of the home base for their preaching and teaching. They'd go up through here. The e Solomon's portico is on the eastern side, the eastern side. And so they'd come in through the eastern wall, the eastern gate. They'd come up here, and this would be basically where they would teach and preach. And the people would come there, but they could also go out into this courtyard. So I wanted you to see that because that's the second time that that's come up. And it just gives you a real good visual of kind of what's going on there. So uh, what happened with... The beggar is still happening. Let's go on and see, see how that works out. Verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So no one else dared join them. Why do you think that was? It says they were highly regarded by the people, being the, the, being the church, the early church, the apostles and the early believers, the ones who were there, uh, you know, before this moment here, that you know they were well thought of. They were highly regarded, but no one else dared join them. What do you think the problem was? What was the disconnect they there? They didn't toss in jail if they did join them or persecuted. Or they just saw two believers die. <laughs> yeah, you, I think you have both of those things going on. I think you have, okay, uh, the leaders of the group, Peter and John, have been thrown into jail already, and they were warned not to do it. So certainly there's fear from uh, being incarcerated. Uh, but also we just came off of Ananias and Sapphira where you know they told a lie to Peter, to the church, to uh, the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, and, and God judged them immediately for that. And so there might have been also some fear from people saying, Ugh, you know, does that mean the first time I tell a little white lie, I'm going to get zapped and, you know, that would be it? Uh, but, you know, we know now after last week, there's a lot more going on there than just that. There's a lot more underneath that was going on as far as why that happened and, and possibly uh, what was going on there as to, as to why it needed to happen. But still in all, people aren't thinking that way. All they're looking at is they're seeing these guys are preaching and they're teaching about Jesus. They're getting arrested. Some of them are dying. I mean, you know, I mean, at that point, you're kind of saying risk versus reward, and they're not really thinking about salvation and eternal life and forgiveness. 
all they're thinking about right now is uh, it's pretty risky. It's pretty high uh, bar to get over if you're going to be a part of this group. Uh, and so they were hesitant. So there was hesitancy. But, you know, I just want to say there's, there seems to always be hesitancy, doesn't there, from unbelievers. I mean, there's always some reason as to why I'm not going to become a Christian, as to why I'm not going to believe in Jesus. Uh, their hesitancy was based on fear, the fear of being arrested or the fear of putting their lives on the line or whatever the case may be. Uh, but they probably could have come up with other reasons there if it hadn't been for that. understanding about why Ananias and Sapphira Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when I first read it, there was a misunderstanding on my part of thinking, if you don't give it all, right. you're going to get zapped. Right, and, right. You know, if you sell your property and don't give every last penny to the Lord, you're going to get killed. Right. You know, so, no. but that isn't. No, not at all. So, but they no, they had the choice that, of doing know. what they wanted to do yeah. or not do. Uh, but you're right. And, and, and the other thing to think about, too, is, as we talked about last week, Ananias and Sapphira still went to heaven. They still were saved. They still uh, went to you know, be in the presence of the Lord. So if you're thinking deeply about it, you might think, hey, you know, even if it were to happen to me, I still am going to be in the presence of God. I'm still going to have eternal life. And hey, uh, Peter and John were let go. You know, they weren't they weren't. Uh, you know, executed. So uh, risk versus reward, if you think about it deeply, you would come to the conclusion, I think, that it's worth doing. But I think there is a hesitancy. Uh, and this is Satan. This is sin. You know, there, there's always a hesitancy people have uh, initially uh, to the, the word of the Lord, to the cause of Christ, to salvation. And, you know, because maybe there's a fear that I have to give up something that I don't want to give up. Maybe I have the fear of I have to change my life. Maybe I have the fear of I can't continue to work where I'm working or going where I'm going or doing what I'm doing. And so there's a fear, sometimes a hesitancy. Uh, so my point is just that this, their hesitancy was probably based on fear of one way or one thing or another. But I, they might have had some other reason or excuse if it weren't that, because people all all through history have had hesitancy when it comes to believing in Christ. And this is just another one. I mean, if you look at the countries today, they've had heavy persecution. Those people are extremely brave to stand up. And so it takes takes an unusually strong person to be able to say, this is what I believe, and this is what I'm going to stand up for. I think what happens a lot is, that courage comes after you accept Christ. Yeah. That courage is supernatural spiritual courage that the Holy Spirit gives you that you don't normally have. Look at Peter, okay? What Peter, Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter ran away. Peter wasn't at the crucifixion. Peter was high hiding while, you know, during the days of waiting for Jesus to be resurrected. Peter was a scaredy cat. He was what I tell my, my son sometimes not to be. Jordy, Jordy, don't be a little baby sissy whiny girl. <laughs> so, I know, you, you can boo me for that. But that's what Peter was. But now look at Peter. He's arrested, he's released, he's preaching. He's arrested, he's flogged, he's released, he's preaching. He has great courage. 
All of these early believers had great courage. All these apostles had great courage. And eventually they all were martyred, some of them terrible, awful ways. Peter, the tradition is, was crucified upside down. So, you know, but they went and they were courageous and they were courageous in the face of this. And so you're right. You're exactly right. Uh, if you just take that step and, and get the hesitancy out of the way and the resistance and give your life to Christ, then you find you have all the courage in the world because what's the worst that can happen? I mean, I'm going to go to be with him. Someone else was saying something over here. That, well, yeah. just bringing it to today is basically what she said, the courage of rejection by many of my families. True. By your own family. True. Exactly right. And really you have to admire like the Jewish people who become believers because they often are just cut off from their family and those people who have to make that decision. Muslims are very... Muslims as well. Although I hear what David has said before that in the Muslim world today that more and more people are becoming Christians than almost any other religion are coming to belief in Christ. So. They still, they're still putting their lives on the line. So these people today, you know, and, and martyrs and the apostles, they put their lives on the line willingly. So although they're saying that we're coming up with these reasons as to why they were keeping an arm's length, I still think they were just excuses. They were just sin, Satan, giving people hesitancy. Because when Satan can convince you to be hesitant and resistant, he wins. And, and he puts those seeds in your, a fear in your mind but when you become a Christian and you rely on God and obey him and have faith in him, then those things go away. So, uh, Ruth, did you have your hand up? Or? I'll just briefly, the, the book that I was reading that I was telling you about was written by an Iranian. Ah! Born and raised in Iran, but became a Christian. And so she's teaching me through this book. That's great. And the first time we went to the mission conference in Green Lake with the American Baptist, I was served communion by a, they call them nationals, uh, the people that were one to the Lord, the missionaries, mm. family, and became Christians, and then they became missionaries, and they served me communion. Isn't that something? Yes. Comes full circle. Almost shaky. I mean, this is really uh, a very special. I That was the first time I've ever had it. But that's just so cool. That's excellent. Well, when I am getting ready in the morning for church, uh, I listen on my um, Echo, Alexa, to a radio station in Florida, believe it or not. And uh, there's a minister on there who, his, he's a Messianic Jew, which is what you call those Jews who become believers. They're Messianic Jews. What's his name? Oh, I don't remember. You guys go down to Florida, don't you? Yeah. I have to get it. I have to find it. Uh was, was David, really David, his name was, uh, is uh, something David, something down there, David. I'll, I'll find out and let you know. But, uh, but he preaches as a Messianic Jew, and his church is all converted Jewish people. And it's just wonderful to hear his take on things. And, uh, but those people have, in many cases, had to leave their family. They're cut off. And, you know, their church really does become their family because uh, their Jewish relatives don't want to have anything to do with them after they become believers. But We have a Messianic Jewish church in Mason. Oh, really? It used to be right down here on Montgomery Road. And when I used to go, I, I had a foster child daughter who loved service. Oh, cool. Because so, they dance and they do all kinds of things. But, yeah. uh, but uh, uh, Pastor Wolf is the guy's name. Okay. And he used to do... 
um, on Easter, he would do the Seder. Yes. Uh, yeah. Thursday night. Yeah. Probably not the Thursday because they had to be there on Friday night. Uh, and it was very special. It is. It is neat. Yeah. It really is. Okay, so that's where we are. So let's go on. So the next word is the word where I really want to spend some time here this morning. The next word in verse 14 is nevertheless. And Ruth, you picked up on this last week. Nevertheless. Man, that is a big word. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And I just think this is so great. This is probably one of my favorite verses taken in context because what does it say? What does it say? What version do you read? Oh, I'm look, uh, this is verse 14 uh, in, in IV. What does your say? Oh, this is the King James. That's good. Let's see, yeah. We bought this because it was big enough we could see. I like the King James. <laughs> Verse 14. Of, yeah. 14 doesn't have nevertheless. It says, And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Interesting. Now, yeah. this translation. Not, not yeah. nearly, this is King James. It's not not nearly as good. What did you say? Uh, this one says, Yet. 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 Mm-hmm. Yet more and more people believe. Yeah. Yeah. So it says, despite the consequences. <laughs> right. They, they nevertheless, more and more men and women. So nevertheless, uh, the reason I like this so much is because what it says to me is the truth that no matter what Satan tries to do, no matter what obstacles he tries to put in the way, no matter what hesitancy and resistance he tries to plant in your heart or mind or spirit, that the word of God will not be stopped. That the kingdom of heaven through Christ will not be halted by Satan. There's nothing he can do to stop this. So we have the fear of uh, life and death situations. Some people that turned them away through their hesitance and resistance. But nevertheless, even though yet, even still, people became believers. Because why? Because Satan cannot hold back the movement of God. He cannot hold back the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven through Christ. No matter what he tries to do, he's a loser. Okay? No matter what he tries to do, he can't stop the truth, even though he tries. And one of the, one of the passages that I, I like the best that illustrates this, you know, it says, the word of God does not return void. So what does that mean? That means that when God, when Christ is preached, when Christ is witnessed to, when you talk to someone about Christ, when David preaches to a big group, when we have in the Sunday school class, we're talking about Christ, that things will happen. Things will happen. People will become closer to Christ, closer to God. They'll become saved. They'll be forgiven. They'll give their lives. But when you give out the word of God, in whatever way you give it out, it does not do nothing. I say sometimes, like, when things happen, I'm like, well... Is that something? I'm not sure, but you know what I do know? I know it's not nothing. (laughs) So when the word of God goes out, I know it's not nothing. Okay? Something's going to happen. But one of the passages I like really, really a lot about this is in Matthew uh, 16. 
if you have your um, Bible. And uh, Matthew 16, we're going to look at verse uh, 18. Um, so we'll go back a little. We'll start as uh, let's start. I'll start at verse 13. It says, "When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is?'" They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my father, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, um, you have to really go into the original language to understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. What he's saying is, on verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and that translates is a rock. But what it really, the kind of rock it is, is like a pebble, okay? So, uh, and I tell you that you are Peter. You're like a little rock, a little rock pebble. Because why? Because you have understood this about me from from God. So God is using you like this, like you're like this little pebble in in God's hand, which is great because the other guys weren't even pebbles yet. So so you that you are Peter. You're a pebble. And on this rock, and the rock there, that rock is translated as this huge, massive boulder that's you know, massive. Ray, I, yeah. I've always thought of the rock as being that, yep. Peter the rock. But no. what, I never heard this pebble business yeah. before. Yeah. Is that, is that the, does it switch from a little rock to a big rock in the, in the, in, in the ancient? Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. In the original Greek, the word used here for Peter means little rock. And the word translated as rock is massive rock. So it's two different kinds of rocks that he's talking well, about. When he says this rock, he means Peter, right? No, he does not. That's the mistranslation. That's the mistranslation. When he says, and I will, and on this rock, this huge massive rock, I will build my church. What is the huge massive rock? If it's not Peter, it's what Peter said. What did Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the massive rock on which I will build my church. That, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. Okay, so so Peter, you're a little pebble, and God's going to use you like a little pebble. Uh, which which my idea of the little pebble there is, you know how you throw a pebble into a, a pond and it ripples out. So this is the idea of my vision of Peter. Peter, you're this little rock, but that's okay. That's good because when you get thrown into the pond of the world and unbelievers, you're going to ripple out and affect the world. So being a little pebble in God's hands is a good thing. But I'm not building my church on you, Peter, right? I'm building my church on this huge, massive, boulder rock that is what you witnessed today, what you said about Christ, that he is the Messiah. So that is uh, the rock on which I build my church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock, not Peter. Sounds like that might be the Catholic interpretation. That's exactly right. They misinterpreted that. Yes, exactly. The Catholic, Catholic Church see that translation as Peter being the rock on which. So Peter was the first pope. And the same thing. You know. Peter's Basilica, they have exactly. A huge statue of Peter. 
Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Now, but this rock is something that we've seen before. This huge, massive rock, this boulder that just is, you know, immovable. We've seen it in Daniel. So if you have your Bible, if you can move back to Daniel, verse uh, or chapter 2, we're going to go start at verse 34. Or actually, we're start, I'm going to start at verse 31. Uh, Daniel 2, 31. It says, and this is Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this huge statue. And he wanted to find out the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what, what does this dream mean? And so this is Daniel. He's interpreting the dream. He says, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Now, this is the interpretation of this is this. He's, he's showing what's going to happen in the future. And each one of these, the gold, the silver, so these are different kingdoms that will rule the world. So you have Nebuchadnezzar, and then you have Persia, and then you have uh, uh, Greece and Rome. That's what all this is uh, talking about. Uh, verse 34, while you were watching a rock, does that sound familiar? Here's the rock. The rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, clay, bronze, and silver, and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, now let's go over to uh, verse 42, in that same chapter, verse 42. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. This is the last, like down on the toes. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold into pieces. So that rock in Daniel is Jesus. Okay. This rock that he's talking about in Matthew, when he talked Peter a little pebble, this rock is the truth that Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, let's deal with the very last part of that. And, and we're still in Matthew 18. I tell you that you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And this is the point of all this I'm trying to tell you is, and the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So all my early life, I was thinking the gates of Hades cannot stand against it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And my thinking was always that, okay, you have this truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this is the rock, and when Satan, through represents the gates of Hades, tries to overcome that truth, he cannot do that. But that's not really what's going on here. 
Because gates are not offensive, right? You don't build a gate to overcome an, what you see as a, an opponent. You build a gate. Why do you build a gate? Keep people out. Keep people out, right? So what the actual, what Jesus is actually talking about here is you have the gates of Hades. You have Satan and all his satanic and all of his sin, all the things he tries to do. But this truth that pounds on that gate, the truth of preaching Christ, teaching Christ, witnessing for Christ, that every time you do that, you're, you're going against Satan, who's put up this gate to try to keep you out and keep that truth out. But guess what? That gate of uh, Satan cannot overcome this truth, and it falls and it fails. So it's saying that Satan has no defense against this word. Satan has no uh, way to survive this. Satan is a loser, and the gates that he puts up to try to defend himself and his way and what he wants will fail and fall at the truth of that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That rock is going to smash that gate. <laughs> so isn't that cool? And so what happens is then, nevertheless, that's what brings us to the point here is, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Uh, Acts 5, verse 14. Acts verse 14. The thing, yes, the thing about, uh, you talk about the King James Version, Stan? Yeah. You know, the thing about King, you know, the, the, King, the way the King James Version came to be was King James, James I, who was from Scotland and went to, to, to the throne in England, is, you know, he wanted to have a version of the Bible in English. And so what he did was he brought all these scholars together to translate from the original language into English. And they all were assigned a certain part. Like you might get Matthew, Mark, and someone else might get Acts and whatever. And so you were assigned to go back and you were assigned to translate your part individually. And then you, they'd come back together again as a council and they would read their translations to each other. So you would read Matthew, for example, and I would be listening. And there would be give and take about, well, you know, Stan, I'm not too sure about that. You might want to check that again. And, but what they did is they read out loud their translations. And so that version of the Bible was written and translated by hearing. And that's why people today, even to this old day, say it's the most beautiful the way they word things and the way they put things, the King James is to this day is still the most beautiful way to hear it. And the reason is because it was written by hearing. I mean, it was written, but it was changed and it was, you know, revised. And the final, the final version was agreed upon by people who were hearing it read and taught. Yeah, and another interesting point, just off on the side. Yeah. When I was in England, I, I picked up a pamphlet about the royal dynasty, whatever you call it, and King James was apparently gay. Oh, really? Which I thought was quite remarkable. Didn't know about that. Of course, back in those days, they did a lot of things that were, you know, off the table. But, but yeah, that's how. So that's how the King. That's why the King James sounds so beautiful because it was written by people speaking it out loud. Oh my goodness. Well, someone said in here, I think when we were doing July 4th, we were talking about all the different things in our country, and someone said something about uh, how back in those days, the way they spoke to each other 
and the way they wrote. I mean, if you read some of the letters that you know John Adams wrote or or Hamilton wrote or and Hamilton and Jefferson Jefferson hated Hamilton, hated him. And so did John Adams. They did not like Alexander Hamilton. But and so they would write things back and forth to each other or even publish things. But it was like in such like a such a poetic language. Like, how could you get mad at someone <laughs> when they put it in such a beautiful way? <laughs> Unlike the social media today that we have. It's like, I'm going to insult you, but you're going to think it's pretty when I do, you know. <laughs> But just the, just that their minds could think like that was just the level of that. We, we tend to think we're so smart, but those men were such intellectuals, and it's reflected in the language that they used. It was just incredible the way that they wrote to each other and that kind of thing. So let's just finish this. We have just enough time to finish this part. So verse uh, 15. As a result, then, people brought the sick into the streets, and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and all those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them, all of them were healed. Not part of them, not some of them, but they were all healed. You know what was happening? Uh, uh, Peter was closing the hospitals in Jerusalem. He was emptying the hospitals, and they were coming out, and they were getting healed, and just like he said in the in the uh, thing we had the devotional, you know, the miracles were used by God through Peter and the apostles to say something, and what it was saying is, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and these people are my representatives. So listen to them. You know, when um, uh, when 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 Jesus was in the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, and Peter was there, and they were coming down. And Peter said, "Wait, let's build, let's build some altars and things up here, and uh, you know that kind of thing." And uh, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary because all you have to do is just listen to Jesus. Just listen. And so uh, that's what this is for. This is why God is doing it because we didn't. He didn't have the written scripture at the time, so he was using the miracles to say, "Listen to these men. Listen to what they're saying. This is not something that." is normal. And can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine the energy, the excitement, the electricity that's going on in Jerusalem this, this time? you got people being healed, and not just physically healed, but spiritually healed, demons being cast out, lives being changed, people being, uh, you know, just miracles happening, and this teaching, and this preaching, and people becoming believers. And I imagine they got up every morning saying, what's going to happen today? Yeah. What's going to happen? I can't wait. What's Peter going to do? What's the, what is their teaching going to be like? And so there's this excitement. But can you imagine? I mean, what it would have been like to be there uh, and be a part of it? It would have been so incredible. And, uh, you know, unlike, I mean, a lot of times I wake up to them like, oh, what's going to happen today? You know, <laughs> oh my gosh, what's happening today? But not, I imagine that time they were getting up saying, what's going to happen today? I can't wait. You know, and Jan, when we watched The Chosen, probably two or three times every time we watched an episode, she goes, she goes, can you imagine what it would have been like to have been there? <laughs> to have known Matthew and Simon and to see Jesus? Can you imagine what that would have been like? Well, the other thing that might have happened is they could have, the, the Pharisees could have come down on top of them too at any time. That's right. It wasn't necessarily like all fun and games. No, that's right. Exactly right. And so, and so, and that brings up a good point, which we'll go into a little bit next time. But um, so 
Does that mean that everybody who got healed all became believers or were believers? Or were there some people that were just there to get the goodies? You know, they didn't believe in Jesus, but they believed that Peter could somehow magically heal them. And once they got their healing, was that the end of it? Or did that lead them to faith? And we'll talk about this some next week since we're out of time this week. But praise the Lord and Thank the God. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.